We are here at the American Humanist Association Conference, uh, and we are here with Dr. Jerry Coyne of the University of Chicago, and he's written a bunch of books. Uh, I'm going to toss it over to him to give you a little brief introduction about himself. Well, I've never introduced myself before. I'm uh, (laughs) intimidating, isn't it? Evolutionary biologist, uh, retired as of September 30th, so I guess you could call me an ex-evolutionary biologist. Congratulations. Um, Which makes you a creationist then, right? <laughs> yeah, not really, because I'm not an apostate. So. Um, and a uh, humanist, obviously, a non-believer, advocate of science. And I have a website called uh, Why Evolution is True, one word, um, .com. And I spend a fair amount of time writing about things that catch my fancy, which include evolution, uh, secular matters, atheism, food, cats, you Boots. name it. So, yeah. Boots. <clears throat> Sorry? Boots? Oh, yeah, cowboy boots. Yeah, like these. Uh, <laughs> I have Yeah, I have a new pair on today. So. I didn't know you were retiring. Congratulations. Yeah, September 30th. I wrote it on my website in one post. I just It was called, I, ret- I retired today. I didn't, I didn't tell anybody I was going to retire. <laughs> I just decided I'd announce it on my website. I was in Poland that day, and I decided I was just going to write one post called, I retired today, <laughs> which was, it was kind of poignant for me because I had to look back at my career and you know, see what the high spots were. Did I have any regrets about what I did? And uh, some, trying to sum up everything in just a couple of thousand words. So, so you're going to move down to Florida? And... No, 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 no. I'm stay in Chicago for the time being. Um, I'm not ready yet for the fountain blue or the retirement home. So, <laughs> so what are the high points for you? Uh, my career, well... There are several. Um, I have to remember exactly what I said. The, you don't the have high to point. This very podcast. That's okay. We Sorry. Know, we know that this is already a high point in your career, so you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to tell everybody. We know. Yeah. Um, in terms of you know doing science for any scientist, the high point, if you're doing it right, is finding out stuff that nobody has ever found out before. I mean, there's this thrill that's hard to explain to people who aren't scientists that when you discover something that nobody ever knew before, you know, there's some you know, ineffable feeling you get. I guess you could call it spirituality, but I hate to use that <laughs> word. But, you know, to be the first, it's like being the first person to see Mount Everest or something like that, you know, except that um, you know that others will build on your work and eventually make it obsolete, but there's still, that's the, <laughs> well, for most, I mean, for the vast majority of scientists. But for a few years, you're on top of the yeah, world. Yeah, that's right, for one brief shining moment. <laughs> as I say in Camelot, you're, uh, you know, your work is, his touted. I mean, there were some people like Darwin, of course, who got it right from the outset. And, you know, although we're way past Darwin in the theory of evolution now, um, the general outline that he limbed in 1859 is correct. But, you know, not all of us can be Darwins. In fact, there aren't many Darwins around anymore. There are none. Um, but still, you know, when you find a fact, and I have to say that none of the phenomena I've uncovered in my career has ever been overturned. So although the interpretation of those phenomena or what they mean um, or the extension of them to other organisms has differed, um, nobody has ever correct, corrected an observation I've made and shown that it's been wrong. So, so. you retired batting a thousand? Yeah, and I'm happy about that. I never tried. I never tried to get into theory. My goal, as I said in my post, was to do very clean experiments in which the outcome was unequivocal. It was either A or B, uh-huh. and there wasn't any doubt about which one was which. So I've done that. That was one of the high points. Producing good students. I haven't had many. Uh, I think four or five total. Um, graduated. Good students. 
Yeah, well, they've all, you know, they all went on to have brilliant careers. And my, my goal was just to reproduce myself, you know. <laughs> so in biology, that means leaving, in general, two offspring, right? If you're a male, a mother or father, I've left, you know, four or five. So, um, and they're all doing well, so I'm happy about that. Um, and there are, you know, other pleasantries. I was never without grant money for, th like, nearly 35 years of research, which is pretty unusual. Um, I was proud of that. Of course, you can't do research for that money, so, you know, I more or less needed that. And regrets, not so many, you know. I've had a good run. That was the conclusion of my piece. Um, I left science because it offered me no more challenges. I'd mastered what you need to do to be a professor, a professional scientist, write grants, publish papers, produce students, teach, you know, review papers and books. The only thrill that was left, and still a substantial thrill, is finding out new stuff. But that's few and far between. I mean, you know, when you're a scientist, you spend most of your time doing this other stuff. And so I realized that the other stuff was not, was, you know, the, Sorry, the uh, thrill of discovery was not sufficient to sustain me anymore because most of the time I was spent doing things I already knew how to do. So that's basically why I retired. So. Let me ask you about your uh, newer book, Faith Versus Facts. Mm -hmm. So you're tackling kind of this big issue of whether science and religion can equally coexist or mm -hmm. can coexist at all. Yeah. And your conclusion is no. Uh, forget what Stephen Jay Gould said these are not like non-overlapping magisteria. Mm -hmm. They do overlap, and science wins. Science comes out on top. Yep. Um, what? Why is that such a controversial thing for people to to understand? Why is that still? I get why like lay people may think that they they want science and religion to be in their own worlds because they want to believe both. But even among credible scientists, a lot of them don't think there is this conflict. Yeah, well, a lot of those scientists just say that because if you publicly say that science and religion are in conflict with each other, you lose, A, credibility, and B, the possibility of getting grants from a Republican and religiously dominated... <laughs> that's the fear. Actually, I don't know any scientist that has ever been... <laughs> They're going to miss out on that sweet Templeton money? Yeah, yeah, that's right. A Templeton's another one. You, yeah, you can never get a Templeton grant. Um, for the listeners that don't know that, Templeton is an organization devoted to spending many millions of dollars on reconciling science and religion. I think it's $75 million a year now that they do that. So, a year? Yeah, they have an endowment. $75 million? $75 million. I looked it up yesterday. Because <laughs> you want some. <laughs> they have an endowment of, uh, last time I looked, and that was six years ago, $1.5 billion devoted what? to this cause. This. Well, Templeton was a mutual fund billionaire. He founded the Templeton Funds, went to the Bahamas to escape taxes, was knighted by the Queen. Like a good American. Yeah. <laughs> and John Templeton's view and where he wanted his money to go when he died was that the more you studied science, the more evidence you get for God. That was, And so the Templeton Foundation was started to fund science, not only to promote religion itself, but also to promote the idea that science and religion were not just separate magisteria, but they were intimately connected. By studying science, you would get evidence for the divine. But isn't that exactly adverse to how science should be practiced? Like, you can't do experiments and try to get yourself to a conclusion that you've already decided, right? Isn't well, that the opposite it, of science? Yeah, to be fair to them, and I don't like being fair to them, because <laughs> I don't like the organization, but they do fund pure science, and they don't... Yeah. I mean, there, there is an agenda. I mean, you know, they fund science that, in general, they think will 
give evidence against materialism. For a while, they flirted with intelligent design, but then they decided that that wasn't going to enhance their credibility. Um, so they'll find a lot of stuff. They, and they give prizes. They give a prize to The Passion of the Christ for the best religious movie of the year. That, so they have these two sides. I know, one completely religious, one scientific. But since they have so much money, I mean, $75 million is a lot. It's more than the National Science Foundation gives out every year for evolutionary biology by far, I think. And so scientists are eager to line up at the trough. So, so going back to the line of questioning, you yeah. said the reason some scientists may not want to say there is that science overtakes religion is because they're afraid of missing out on some grant money, maybe, well, or it's not something you want to say in public. Yeah, I mean, most scientists don't go for Templeton grants. Remember, right. most scientists are atheists. I'm, it's 42, well, not most of them, but of the average scientists in America, 42% of them were atheists or agnostics. And that's about, you know, seven times the rate of the American public as a whole. For good scientists, the ones at elite research universities, it's, it's like 75%. So why aren't they saying the same thing? Because, well, that's a good question. Um, and I think the reason is why Steve Gould wrote that book is that you look good. You look like a nice person. You look at like an open-minded, expansive person. If you say, oh, you know, science and religion can get along, that, you know, we're in, we're in comedy, uh, you know, let's all love each other. You get props for that because you look good. If you go out and say, as I do, you know, science and religion are at odds with each other, basically religion makes claims about the universe that has no way to substantiate, you don't look very good. So even if you say it in the gentlest way possible, and I think in my book I tried, you still get accused of being shrill and harsh, militant, you know. It's just the idea I, that you're saying something that's anti-religious. I forgot who said this, but there's no nice way to tell people, hey, everything you believe in is wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the message of my book is not so much that. It is implicit that, but the, me the main message is, well, yeah, it carries that, is that, that science and religion are both schema which aim to tell us truths about the universe. Religion, of course, is more than that. Mm -hmm. It also fosters, you know... Um, Harmony, brotherhood, if you're in the same religion. Um, <laughs> you know, myth. sometimes good works, and it's a way of forming community. So religion is more than that. But at bottom, and many theologians have admitted this, and I go to great lengths in my book to say that, at the bottom in almost all religions is the assertion that the universe there are certain truths about the universe that are real, in the same way that scientific truths are real. There is a divinity that oversees it all. There's a heaven or hell where you go after you die. Um, there's a trinity that Jesus was a real person who was divine, lived and was resurrected. So, and that science has a way to adjudicate its truths and find out whether its propositions are right or wrong, but religion doesn't. So, How do you assess these scientists from your perspective? Like, what do you think of when you think of Stephen Jay Gould or someone like Francis Collins, who runs the NIH, gives out all this government grant money? Great scientist, but he does believe he's an evangelical yeah. Christian. So how do you judge them? How, what do you think about them? I think they're subject to a certain amount of, I don't know if it's cognitive dissonance, because cognitive dissonance is when you hold two incompatible views in your head and it causes you trouble. I don't think somebody like... Francis Collins or Ken Miller, for example, have trouble sleeping in. <laughs> there, but there is this human mind's ability to hold two completely different ideas or worldviews in their head at the same time without seeing the conflict between them, which is, you know, um, I don't, you know, since I've never held, held those, I don't understand how they do it. But, you know, to go to your lab five days a week, leave the God at the door, and assume that everything is materialistic and naturalistic and do your experiments, 
and then going to church on Sunday and all of a sudden throw all that critical, doubtful mindset out the window and say, well, you know, this wine, the water, wine is literally turning into Christ's blood and the way for his body in some way that you really can't tell, but it's more than just a symbolic thing. Sure. defies me. I don't understand how people can believe that. Or believe, for example, that Jesus was resurrected um, after his crucifixion and came back again, you know, without any evidence whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So as a scientist, you will only believe things for which there's evidence that's irreplicable. You have this habit of doubt. This is the basic thesis of my book. For religion, you don't have that. Um, you basically have confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. You look for things that, you know, buttress your beliefs and try to wipe away the things that don't. Implicit in that message that science has a way to find out what's true, try and test it and hone. I mean, scientific method is not something that somebody sat down and said, we're going to do it this way. Uh -huh. It has been refined and honed over the past five centuries. Um, for, for a time, the supernatural was part of the scientific method. Newton thought that God had to push the planets from time to time to keep them in orbit because he couldn't see how they'd be stable. And before Darwin... Um, creationism, I think, was you could consider that part of science because that was the only credible explanation for how animals and plants got here and were so perfectly adapted to their environments. Now, the scientific method grew up because we learn through experience that assuming the supernatural has an effect on, um, and supernatural itself is a slippery term, but assuming that some divinity has an influence on the workings of the universe never let us anywhere. In fact, it's been a, blo a, pro a block to the progress of science, assuming that epilepsy is demonic possession, that smallpox and bubonic plague are manifestations of God's displeasure, mm -hmm. that God has to push the planets to keep them in orbit, and, you know, um, Laplace showed that was wrong. You could do it by naturalistic methods. After a while, you start realizing that you don't need God. That's Laplace's famous statement, you know, I, I have no need of that hypothesis. So over the time, the scientific method grew up as a way to find out truth, and that method does not include invocations of God. What's the reaction to your book been? Uh, it's pretty predictable, people who are not. <laughs> and it's sad to me. I mean, you know, the, to the first book, the evolution book, uh, you know, unless you're diehard creationist, people liked it. You know, it was not contentious. I made one sort of, you know, conciliatory statement about religion in that book, and that was it. This one, because it, and as, as you said, Hamana, you know, it tells people, I mean, the implicit message is what they believe is wrong. Yeah. The explicit message is the way you go about finding truth in religion is different from the way you go about finding truth in science. And then I point out that, you know, the, the truths that different religions settle on are different. <laughs> and how do you know which one is true? I mean, everybody knows this who's rational. <laughs> if you're a Muslim and you think, and you say that Jesus was you know, the son of God and a prophet and holy, they can kill you for that. It's certainly, you know, heresy. Whereas in a Christian, that is an essential part of your belief. So, you know, in my talk on Monday, I give a phylogeny of the religion starting 20,000 years ago and show them branching off one after the other, and each branch represents a difference in opinion of what's true in general. Is there one God or three gods? <laughs> Can women be priests? I mean, the two branches of, uh, of Lutheranism differ in whether or not they accept evolution as a scientific truth, and that was caused a schism. Schism in Mormons, whether God wants you to be polygamous or not, and there's no way to decide which religion is true. So when you realize that, then yeah, the implicit message is you're believing stuff for which there's not much evidence. Mm -hmm. You know, and you shouldn't be. Um, 
There's so, your next book, Why Religion is False. Yeah. It'll um, be a nice well, book and you know, why evolution is true. It's implicit in there. But, um, yeah, so the reaction has been atheists like the book, but anybody that is either a theist or a sympathetic to theism, one of the examples of that is John Horgan, who's a believer yeah. in belief, who really trashed the book in the Wall Street Journal. Um, for reasons that I don't think are valid, um, when we signed us, we're used to criticism, but I wasn't prepared for people telling me that I was shrill, strident, and militant in a book which I thought was pretty calm and well-argued. Um, the fact is that there are a lot of people who believe in belief, like Horgan, for example, who is an atheist himself. Another one is Robert Wright. And yet, they will not countenance any criticism of religion because they have this view, which I call the little people view, that you know, I don't need religion. It's, you know, I don't need this stuff. I, I don't need that hypothesis. But Everybody else does because without religion, you know, society would fall apart. Kind of sending yeah, kind of, yeah, it is extremely patronizing. I don't get it at all. It's like you know, people aren't going to do good without religion. Religion has been such a good influence in the history of humanity. Well, then, you know, if that's the case, why have they given it up themselves? Right. You know, um, so I wasn't really prepared for the pushback from religious people, but now I'm getting used to that. And I've realized that really, you can't criticize religion even very mildly in this country without angering mm -hmm. a lot, poking the beehive of people. Um, that doesn't mean I'm going to stop, <laughs> you know, because I think it works, you know. I mean, it's, you know, there's ways and ways to criticize religion. There's, you know, the mild way. Um, I'm trying to, I guess... Which is funny, because when I read, like, Dawkins' The God Delusion, that yeah. is a mild book. That is not really an aggressive book no, at all. Isn't. But he is thought of as some really angry, militant guy... It's like, no, his book isn't. He isn't in person. Uh, but again, it goes back to there's no nice way to say that the stuff no. that you put your faith in is just not true. Yeah. I mean, Richard is a particularly interesting case. I mean, you remember in his book, he says, I can't prove that God doesn't exist, but I have a scale of surety. Yeah. And from like one to seven, I think, and I'm on that scale where seven is, I'm certain there's no God. And one is, I'm sure there is a God. He's like a 6.9. As a scientist, you can't really say I'm absolutely sure that God doesn't exist. You can't rule that out with finality. But then now Robert Wright just gave a, a podcast last week in which he said the new atheists are characterized by their absolute certainty that yeah. God doesn't exist. That's they love creating straw men. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. They make up stuff about. And the militant and Schroeder and Stroll stuff is is um, a canard as well. There are new atheists that are that, that were that way. Christopher Hitchens could be pretty acerbic at times. But Richard and, you know, um, Dan Dennett especially uh, are pretty mild by and large. Well, and especially when you compare them to religious extreme. Like, even if, even if every terrible thing they think about atheists is true, that we are shrill and strident and all that stuff, the flip side of religious extremism is they're killing people. So, like, I'll take shrill any day of the week over... Even if, you, even if you don't go, they're killing people, the, the ones who really believe this stuff, think about what they're pushing. Yeah. It's, like, the worst type of laws, the type that really attack yeah. people. Like, I'm going to ruin your life because of the something I believe. Whereas you guys are like, we hope science is taught properly. That's the extremism yeah. on the other yeah, side. Yeah, you know the old cartoon of the mil they show a militant Christian and a militant Muslim with guns and stuff, and then the militant atheist is there with a <laughs> glass of beer trying to convince yes. somebody of an argument. That's the way it is. Uh, it's very strange. I, I don't understand why. 
I mean, nobody goes after you. If you express your political views as a Democrat or Republican to somebody in an argument, they're not going to shut you down by saying you're just a militant Republican. Right. And well, I really don't understand the difference between religion and, and no politics. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You know, not these days. Out. I mean, there were back in the old days. I yeah. still remember moderate Republicans, but they seem to be a dying breed. But I just don't understand. There's something about religion that I can't quite understand that renders it immune to criticism yeah. in a way that politics is not. Because they're both ideologies. They're both deeply held. Mm -hmm. They're both part of people's you know, self-image. And yet, you've never heard somebody dismissed as a militant Democrat, like Bernie Sanders, for example. Right. You, you, know, you can't listen to him, can't believe what he says. His. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's just part of the confirmation yeah. bias. You find ways to dismiss your opponents. But still, you know, somebody should explain to me someday why religion is the one form of human belief where you can actually get away exactly. with this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. How deeply frustrating is it for you to look at our government and the people running our science wings of the government and our don't believe in evolution? How, how tricky is that? Well, to I, mean, I think with? Democrats do. I remember the Republican debate when Obama was first elected and they had the Republican debate and they asked them to raise their hands if they didn't believe in evolution, I think, and I think all of them raised their hands. Three of them said they uh, are creationists. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You would know this, because you follow this stuff, yeah. But none of them are, are, you know, will come out and say, I accept the theory of evolution, whereas Democrats do. So the problem is Republicans control the Congress by and large. Mm -hmm. Every Republican on the House Science and Technology Committee is a climate warming denialist, as far as I can see. They're starting to go after the National Science Foundation in the same way that uh, Proxmire used to do, saying, oh, this stupid science stuff that we don't understand is a waste of money. Um, it is frustrating, and one reason that this goes on, well, there's two reasons. People you know, are Republicans, and they're wedded to an anti-scientific view, particularly when it comes to climate change and evolution. But um, second of all, scientists don't lobby very well. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's illegal, for example, for the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health to send lobbyists into Congress to you know, promote science. If only we had that sweet Templeton money. <laughs> Yeah, there's the Templeton money. You know, I, I regard that as you know selling out if you take that. But money's really hard to come by these days. So, um, yeah, the climate denialism thing is, and that's tangentially connected with religion. I mean, there's a lot of climate denialists who are atheists, and you know there are religious organizations that push climate denialism on religious grounds. But you know, the refusal to face these facts. And that's another problem. It's not just religion. It's Faith, yeah. period. Yeah. <laughs> That's another point I try and make on back. So I don't call it religion versus fact. I call it faith versus fact. It's basically rationality versus superstition. Confirmation bias versus a willingness to accept evidence that doesn't go in favor of your pet hypothesis. So it's this faith, the same kind of faith that motivates you know, spiritual healing. Um, this is what does damage to the country. And I think climate denialism is a form of faith because it refuses to face the facts about what we know and... Um, it's almost a religion, in fact. And this is so, it's really the danger, I think, is well, religion, of course, is the most widespread form of superstition and, and rationality. And that's why it's even more dangerous. But faith, if you're going to subsume everything under one rubric, it would be faith versus fact. So, your first book, uh, I think it's your first book, Why Evolution is True. Uh, okay, obviously about evolution. This one we just talked about uh, science and religion. 
where do you go from here? What's your next book idea? What do you hope to write yeah, about? Well, in the I future? think I've exhausted the religion thing. I've had my say. I mean, that was years of writing and thinking about it. It's distilled into this book. I really don't have any. That's exactly what Dawkins said too. By the way, I don't know. Like this yeah, week, he'll never write exactly, another God's He's done with religion. religion. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty much done with religion too. Although I'm, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to, you know, be, still be an anti-theist, but I don't feel like I'm going to write much about it. There's certain inimical effects of religion, like faith healing, which continue and which I will continue to write about because they have an intersection with science in a way that a lot of it doesn't. Um, I'm going to write. Well, I'm, preparing a proposal to write a very short introduction to evolution for the general public. So it'd be like why evolution is true, but different um, because it's on speciation, which is my area of expertise, the formation of new species. There is no popular book on how new species form. I mean, Darwin's book was called On the Origin of Species, but there's nothing in there, <laughs> basically, on the origin of species. It's on the origin of adaptation. This is what he was So your book about. is on the origin of species, like yeah, in parentheses, like really? <laughs> yeah, I'd like to call it that, but I don't think I will. That would be really presumptuous on the real origin of species or something like that. I think I'll call it Take that, Darwin. Face Darwin. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's going to be a short one, a 30,000-word book uh, in the very short introduction series of the Oxford University Press, assuming that they accept my proposal. And then I'm writing a children's book, which has nothing to do at all with science or evolution or religion, but just because, to me, this represents a real challenge. That's, Something I different. Have, yeah, and I have no idea of how to do it. I know I have a subject, <laughs> I have an illustrator, I have some ideas, but you know, it's a very different thing to do. I mean, it's sort of an advocation. I don't spend a lot of time doing that. And then I'd like to get more into writing. Um, you know, I've been doing that all my life popular writing and more journalism than book writing, I think, you know, it's an enormous um, expenditure of energy to write a book. I don't think people realize what it's like, you know, how horrible, I mean, it's not fun to write. I've never met a, a writer that enjoyed the actual act of having to write a book. You enjoy it when it's done yeah. or when you're going through the pros and tweaking it or saying, well, that's a good idea, but, you know, um, so whereas journalism, like, you know, the kind of stuff I do in my blog, but maybe in newspapers or magazines is kind of another avenue I want to go down in the future. Let me ask you about something else I've seen you write a lot about on your website, which mm -hmm. is all of the, the arguments going on on campuses right now between mm -hmm. free speech or what should be tolerated, uh, what the regressive left is saying, etc. cetera. Uh, I haven't been on a college campus in several years. <laughs> Uh, but I am probably closer to the age of the students that are protesting a lot of these things. Uh, you're on a campus, mm -hmm. and you're not the students who are protesting these things. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, uh, do you get where the... Uh, explain the conflict from your perspective, and, like, where are you coming from on this, and where do you think the other side is coming from on well, this? Well, that's a big question. It is a very big question. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, the conflict is basically... It's about oppression in general. Um, there are various groups that feel oppressed, and by and large have been historically. Women, um, gays, lesbians, bisexuals, um, Muslims, um, you know, uh, black people, um, which are, who are largely active in these latest campus movements. And it's starting to come out in a variety of ways. Um, which I call identity politics. I mean, I, I didn't name that, but it's a form of political activism in which your goal, at least it seems to me, is not to so much change the greater society at large, although that's the goal that's stated, but mainly to point out 
your own oppression and to label people into different groups by the degrees of oppression they are and to try to change not the whole system but your own particular arena, in this case your college campus, in a way that's amenable to your political conclusions. So, for example, um, black students at uh, Yale, I think, demanded that the Woodrow Wilson statue be taken down because he made racist comments. When he was president, they want the house masters to be not be named masters anymore because that conjures up... Um, slavery. You know, slavery, mm, yeah. yeah. Um, they want special houses maintained for you know, um, black kids to live in. They want more courses in, you know, African-American culture. More black professors hired. More black, X number of black professors hired. Um, And I can understand where that's coming from. Um, I'm not a black person. I haven't experienced this oppression, but just because you're white doesn't mean you're completely oblivious to it. So I think that some of the motivations are good. These students have um, experienced some problems, and there are endemic forms of racism and sexism in universities. Everybody knows this. Um, the question is, how do you fix that? And I'm not sure that the way these students are doing it is the right way, because they're making. First of all, they're making demands. They're not negotiating. Um, they're and they're disrupting people. They try to get speakers to not speak if. Somebody who, for example, is against affirmative action comes on the campus. I believe in affirmative action, or I think it's still a useful tactic. But if you have that viewpoint, you try to, if you have the viewpoint that affirmative action is wrong and you try to speak on a college campus, more often than not, you're going to get the students trying to stop you from speaking. They'll either try to get you disinvited or they will interrupt your speech with whistles. Um, this happened to Milo Yiannopoulos and Christian Hoff Summers. They've been doing this tour. Just happened at DePaul, not far yeah, from DePaul, where we're at. Yeah, DePaul here in town. Um, the, the, the students got up on stage with whistles. They interrupted the speech. He talked for 20 minutes, and then they shut him down completely. Um, you know, So these tactics involve things that are very different from what I was used to when I was a student, which was in a great period of activism in the 60s. But now so. the argument I think the other side would make there is that's their way of getting attention to these issues that mean a lot to them. Oh, well, yeah. And if they're not protesting, if they're not interrupting the speech, you're not going to pay attention to it. Like, you just, they won't get any, they won't get their message across if well, they're not protesting. I don't, yeah, I don't think that's true. First of all, sometimes the message is not a valid one. I mean, when the students at Oberlin claimed that the food that was served in their cafeteria was ethnically appropriative, they, in particular General Chow's, Chow's chicken, which isn't even an Asian dish. You, you remember this story. They complained that it was made with um, fried... It's not authentically it's not Asian authentic. And the banh mi sandwiches, Vietnamese sandwiches, are, were not made authentic. That's not a valid protest. Um, it's questionable about whether statues of people like Woodrow Wilson, because back, after all, back in those days, virtually everybody was a racist and a sexist. That's not to excuse them. It's deplorable, but you know, they did make contributions, and we can't rewrite history in every case. If we were going to do that, we'd have to get rid of every statue made before the 19th century. Goodbye, Mount Rushmore. Yeah. I mean, so I think there's, I mean, if you really want to change society against racism, first of all, you can't do that by shutting down your opponents, because what these students are doing at DePaul is they're making the point of the speaker, Milo Yiannopoulos, which is that students are coddled, they're spoiled, they're unwilling to have a free exchange of ideas, which is necessary in college, they just shout down their opponents. Well, that doesn't get their message across. These, if you look at these videos, you're not going to be sympathetic to these students. I mean, sometimes it might work. It might have worked at University of 
Missouri at Columbia when they got the football coach and the president fired. But I don't think that was for non-peaceful protests that made them do that. I think that, you know, it just caused such a fracas to think that you could lose your football team. <laughs> People work. What about in uh, a couple months ago in Chicago when protesters shut down the Trump rally? Do you think that's in a similar... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thing? I don't think anybody... I mean, if America's founded on anything, it's founded on the idea that democracy only works when people are able to have free, open discourse with each other. And out of this discourse comes the best ideas. I mean, that's why we have free speech. And, and when, you, when you shut down your opponent, you're not going to win. Mm-hmm. And so I compare the tactics of today's protesters with those of the students that I, when I was a student in the 60s, which we did, and I was a big activist back then, um, we engaged in civil disobedience. We did not shut down speakers. We had our, for example, at my own graduation, we wanted a left-wing speaker to speak. And we invited Charles Evers, who's Medgar Evers' brother, the murdered civil rights leader. Um, and the university wouldn't have none of it. They invited a right-wing conservative <laughs> local congressman to speak. Well, what did we do? We didn't shut him down. We went to graduation. We wore peace symbols on our hats and black armbands, but we sat there respectfully. And then we went across campus and had a counter a counter commencement with Charles Evers as the speaker. The victories of the civil rights advocates in the 60s, when they really changed society, and that was a movement which was designed not just to change your university or college, but to change the whole structure of American society. We were eminently successful. And what did they do? Civil disobedience. So you know? uh, suppose Milo, Christine uh, Hoff Summers, they're mm-hmm. speaking at University of Chicago, let's say. Yeah. What's your advice to people who, are, who, who don't like, like what them? they have to say? Yeah. Uh, well, what should they you, do? Well, first of all, if you think it's going to trigger you, and a lot of these students think that they're, they're thrown into paroxysms of, of misery and agony and, you know, be, by listening to these people, I say, don't go. You know, if you consider this an unsafe space in which you're... But is, gonna... is that fair? And the reason I ask is, look, if there was a creationist on campus who was giving a talk on creationism, yeah. I don't think it would be fair to just say, oh, well, don't, yeah. don't attend it. No, you would want to criticize it somehow, because yeah, this yeah, isn't what you're You can saying. criticize it without telling you. Yeah, you make a good point, Hemant, which is... You know, do you want to expose yourself to ideas? And the answer is yes, of course you want to expose yourself to contrary ideas. That's what democracy is about. That's what college is about. But if you know, I mean, these students that go to Hero Milo and Christina Huff Summers, they're not at all open-minded. and They have no intention of listening to them and changing their minds. They're going to disrupt it. So, you know, if you're that, if you feel like you either have to disrupt it or if you're going to be so triggered by these meetings that you cannot hear what the speaker says, don't go. Otherwise, I'd say, you know, keep an open mind. And from experience, and, you know, look at how the Indians got rid of the British in, in, you know, in 1947. It wasn't through killing them. It was a whole con- subcontinent involved in civil disobedience and peaceful protest. That's what won. What moves people is not the sight of protesters blowing whistles at speakers. It is them sitting in a line and being hauled away by police, like the civil rights protesters in the 60s, the lunch counter sit-ins, the freedom riders, the marchers on Selma. They let themselves be arrested. They let themselves be beaten. They did not... And if they had shot the police, they wouldn't have achieved the success they had, you know. So I would tell people the only, the best remedy for speech you don't like is counter speech. Be it go to this talk and ask questions. Or have your own counter event like we did in college. Or write, best yet, write articles. Because I think writing is actually the best way to make your point. People can sit there in the quietude of their room, weigh your arguments. That's the way I think minds are changed. Not I've always thought, uh, I think we did this in, co- uh, in college when it was a science issue or maybe it was a Supreme Court appointment that Bush was making or something like that. 
But it wasn't, uh, if there was someone speaking on campus we didn't like, we would piggyback off that event, advertise our own events off of that, and say, look, yeah, yeah, this guy's speaking on our campus at 3 o'clock, but at 4 o'clock we're hosting this thing right here and advertising that in the same... I see the chalking for them. I'm putting mine right underneath. Um, just to make sure, hey, there's another side to this story that you're not hearing if you go listen to that person. Yeah, Come this listen is sort to of the, uh, the public perception of shrillness. I mean, the public don't like militancy. As we've talked about in atheism, and in atheism, they'll even make it up that you're militant when you're not. But if you really are militant, like the students at, uh, I think it's at Amherst, that marched into the library and shouted things at, at the students, you know, you're you white bitch, you have white privilege, and I'm not going to let you study. They don't make their case by doing that. People see that, and they say, well, you know, I mean, when you do that, the... That's not a convincing it's argument. Not, it's not only <laughs> a convincing argument. It's not even an argument at all. Right. People cannot see beyond that. So to the very real grievances that some of these students have, and I'm no doubt that they don't, they have these grievances, but they're completely buried in this list of nonsensical demands that they make. You know, you need... We're, I demand that within the next year you you start a department of you know um, Latinx studies or something like that. You know, well, do we need such a department? Or is it not subsumed in other departments? Do we have other priorities? That those discussions cannot be had because they're demands. So. Do you think the issue is any worse at a campus like University of Chicago, where the student body? tends to be more politically active and minded like that? Uh, well, the University of Chicago is kind of unique because, yeah, the student body is very what I call regressive or authoritarian leftist. That is, they're engaged in identity politics. And let me add that I think a lot of identity politics, not all of it, is involved not in really changing society but trying to label yourself as being virtuous by what you stand for and labeling somebody else as, you know, um, immoral because of what they stand for. University of Chicago has a huge dichotomy between the students and the faculty. So whereas the students are pretty much regressive leftists, because I read the student newspaper, I see them, you know, in terms of um, trying to shut down speech against what they believe in. In fact, two events were shut down last year. One of them was uh, an Israeli, a Palestinian who was a friend of Israel, which is a no-no on campuses these days. You have to demonize Israel or you're going to be shouted down. I can't remember what the other one was. Students engaged in this kind of stuff. The, the administration, on the other hand, is resolutely pre, for, for, pro-free speech. We have the strongest speech code in the country. It's the model for all of the universities. And it says, basically, you know, we will not tolerate the abrogation of freedom of speech on our campus. And uh, you can say whatever you want. It's on the web. You can read it. Jeffrey Stone chaired a committee to do that. So we have an administration committed to free and open discourse on the one hand, students who are sort of not committed to that on the other. And it's interesting to see how it plays out. Just out of curiosity, do they ever have discussions about this stuff in the faculty lounges? Do you guys discuss this, you know, in the offices? And what conversations do you all have about uh, it? The faculty pretty much stay out of it as far as I can see. Um, you know, I've thought of writing letters to the paper, but... You know, you, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Um, if I were to write a letter to the paper saying I don't think it's good to shut down speakers, I would be demonized pretty much by the students on campus. You know, my fact, my colleagues. But would you're probably, retired now. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, I am. I'm retired now, and I could do that. But I think, well, you know, now there's that I'm your retired, children's book. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, Elmo uh, yeah. wants to speak on stage, but Grover's shouting him down. Yeah, that could be a good Dr. Seuss book, right? <laughs> yeah, 
Here's a man with bad things to say. We will not let him speak today. <laughs> I'd read that. Yeah. <laughs> Green yeah. eggs and ham. It's offensive to vegans. Yeah, so, uh, you know, by and large, the faculty stay out of this. I, they're pretty much for speech. It was a faculty committee that, that constructed our free speech policy. But the students go on. And, you know, this year there have been two demands on the faculty made by the students. The first was we need to divest the university from fossil fuels, you know, I agree with, you know, that we shouldn't do that, but the university has a policy that we that they will not direct their investments in any kind of political, ideological way. That's a policy. So I signed the petition knowing it wasn't going to work anyway. The latest one is that the student government passed the BDS-type sanctions, you know, boycotts of Israel, that asking the faculty to divest university investments into any organization that supports Israel. Um, and, the, of course, the faculty just said, you know, go away, we're not going to do that, which I think is great, um, you know. Um, so this is an example of the kind of tension we have. Whereas at other schools like Yale and Harvard, for example, they'll actually cave in to the student demands. Harvard, Drew Faust, the president, did something which I consider very nefarious. She said, you know, oh, there are fraternities and sororities at Harvard, but they're not formally affiliated with the university. They're off-campus organizations. There are also things called finals clubs. And they're, by and large, they're single sex. So they have them for women and they have them for men separately. And you can join them. And Drew Fest, as president of Harvard, said, okay, we're going to have this policy. If you belong to one of these single sex organizations, we're not going to help you at Harvard. We're not going to let you be an yeah. officer in any of the Harvard organizations. You can't hold a position of power in any sports team. So, for example, you can't be captain of the all-male football team at Harvard if you belong to an off-campus male fraternity. Um, and we were not going to write you a letter of recommendation if you apply for, like, a Rhodes Fellowship or a Marshall Fellowship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't like single-sex organizations. I've never belonged to one. But on the other hand, there is freedom of association. And particularly if it's off-campus, you know, how can a university punish somebody for doing something on their own time that has nothing to do with the university at all? Yeah, and I definitely understand what they were trying to do because so many of these male um, fraternities were gave them so much uh, privilege and so much leverage into the world that women were necessarily excluded from because... But that's not even the motive. I mean, the motivation was because so much sexual harassment was supposed to stem from fraternities. Oh, well, you know? I mean, that too. But the, the problem then became women and LGBT wanted these safe spaces yeah. to be with other women to relate to their experiences, and then they were losing that as well. So yeah. it was very much a broad brush that kind of screwed over everybody in a way. Yeah, and, and you know, some of the, the most, most vocal opponents to that plan were the sororities. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I wrote to Drew Faust, and I just said, look, you know, I don't agree with single-sex organizations by and large, but Harvard has, an, I'm an alum, Harvard has no business intruding into the private lives of its students when it has nothing to do with the university. Right. Um, I suspect that the faculty will rise up and, and overturn this policy. But that's, an, I mean, and of course, Yale, they got rid of the, they changed the name, I think, of one of the Woodrow Wilson schools. I think they're yeah. getting rid of his statue, but I'm not sure of that. Um, you know, those are all token things. I, I mean, if what they should be doing is an, an investigations of really, is there endemic sexism and racism in this university, and should we do something about it? That takes some time. Yeah. But the, the way you don't do it is to immediately cave into a list of students saying, we demand this, 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 and this right, right now. So, well, I bet you know. it's also frustrating for students because you're right, those things do take time, but they're only at the school for four years. And so they want to see this change while yeah. they're there, which yeah. is... But presumably they're not trying to just change the school. They're trying to change society but, at yeah, large. The world. You know, racism. And that's, 
You know, a difference I see between the students in my era, I'm, I sound like a curmudgeon now, <laughs> and the students of this era that, you know, I mean, they purport to be interested in civil rights as a whole, and many of them are indeed, but the impression I get is that most of them just want to create their own space for their own ethnic group in their own campus where they can feel safe, you know, <laughs> so, and... The thing that bothers me is I'm on their side for a lot of things, yeah. and yet I don't want to be involved with them. And when you're alienating your own allies, that just doesn't sound like a winning combination. Yeah, but the problem is you have to stick with what you believe, you know? I mean, I cannot in conscience, you know, sign on to many of these demands. Um, Some of them are just ludicrous. Other places, I think that students don't have a right to run their own university. Um, The universities are structured in a way that the experience of people who are educators and are older have done it. Students should have a say, of course, in this kind of stuff, but they don't. I mean, what we have here is a form of fear of leftist, as I presume, mm-hmm. you know, him, as you said, you are, and I consider myself to be. You're stuck in the middle because in many positions you align yourself with the right wing. <laughs> For example, the right wing are, are more in favor of free speech than the left is now. Right. I mean, even you know. if you remember when uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali was like, here's an honorary doctorate, no, we're not giving that to you. Hey, you're a commencement speaker, now you're not. Like, no, I remember watching even Bill Maher was like, what are you doing? You're the liberals. Yeah. Start acting like it. Nick Cohen has written a great book, two great books on that. His newest one called You Can't Read This Book about censorship and his earlier one called um, What's Left, which is about the decline of the left. I and here Celia is demonized, as are all ex-Muslims who are trying to reform their own system. We see the situation where... Feminists and black people are on the side of Muslim organizations that are both homophobic and racist and anti-feminist. What is that about? You know, how does this happen? Who was it, Miriam Namazi, whose yeah, uh, speech was, in Britain yeah, and was shut University. down by like a, a... She was speaking out against Islam. Yeah. And yes, the Muslim group basically got her speech canceled, I think, if I have that correct. Well, they interrupted it. Actually. They interrupted yeah, it. They, yeah, the but first it was they canceled a it feminist that. group joined forces with them. An LGBT group joined forces against her well. speaking there, too. Yeah. It's like, you're, she's on your side. What are yeah, you doing? I, know. I didn't hear CLE should really be the poster child for leftism. Um, she's liberal. She's black. She was mutilated genitally as a Muslim. Um, she rose from a condition of poverty to being a member of the Dutch Parliament. She made a film, Fitna, which people should really watch, Submission. It's on YouTube. And this is the one that got Theo Van Gogh killed, and, she, her, and now she has bodyguards. It's a film that any liberal would agree with. It's a bunch of women talking about how they were brutalized by their husbands and boyfriends, you know. And yet she's she's an outcast from the left, and yeah. it's because well, of this. she works with the right wing think tank. But that's the only people that would hire her. That's the I thing. I know. Yeah. You know, she she said that repeatedly. Yes. Yeah. They they saved me when no one else was helping that's me. That's correct, and that's an sh- eternal shame to the left that they did not provide provide a safe haven for Ian Hersey Lee. What we see here is a classic collision, which Nick Cohen writes about, of two leftist values, um, feminism, the, the, the desire to have people have equal rights, gays, blacks, women, and the, the, the idea that there's a group of oppressed people, usually Muslims, that we have to have sympathy for. And although that oppressed group, you know, just because you're oppressed doesn't mean that everything you believe is virtuous. So, you know, a lot of Muslim tenants are anti-liberal. They're, you know, the oppression of women, the demonization of gays, no free speech, the killing of apostates. Not every Muslim believes that, but in general, a lot of them do. And that collides with, you know, so you have an underdog that has a liberal, unliberal values colliding with liberals, you know, who 
have other values, and you get this cognitive dissonance. In general, the liberals are tending to side very often with, you know, the um, people that have unliberal values. So what I call it the sort of political horseshoe. The left is bending around until it's coming close to the right again. Mm-hmm. So, let me ask you uh, one last question. We'll let you go. Uh, you you know a lot of these atheists that I think a lot of people know about the the Dawkins. Uh, Hitchens, Harris. I mean, you talked to several of them, I assume. Mm-hmm. Who are your closer friends among that sort of group? Well, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't see them every day. I have beers right, with them. But right. pe- you know, people like, you know, um, Krauss, and in particular Steve Pinker, uh, Richard Dawkins, and Dan Dennett, I consider to be very close colleagues. We're having a discussion right now on email about, you know, how, how do we make the argument that religion is in the net dangerous to people. I mean, this is based on um, the discussion that Robert Wright had with uh, somebody the other day. Oh, with Krauss. I watched their debate, and Wright was adamant saying that religion has in main been good in history, and Krauss said, well, I don't think so. You know, how do you adjudicate the good versus bad at religion? And so we're trying to discuss this kind of stuff. So we have these email discussions, and you know, I know them fairly well. I was but. I was going to ask. Uh, besides that email discussion, when you see them, what do you guys talk about? <laughs> well, I, I I imagine it's not just religion and stuff. No, no, yeah. it's it's other stuff. I mean, you know, I'm, I'll probably see. I hope to see Steve in Harvard when I go there next week, and we'll probably have drinks at the faculty club, and we'll start off maybe talking about our books or politics or stuff like this. But as we get, you know, a bit buzzed on gin and tonics. <laughs> It will turn to other things, you know, our lives, romantic relationships we've had. So it's just normal human interactions, you know. I just, I'm just pleased to be friends with such a group of smart people, you know. Again, those are guys who are all demonized mm-hmm. in the atheist community. Pinker is seen as a feeble-minded progressivist. <laughs> Dennis is the only one that has seemed to become pretty immune to criticism. But, of course, Richard and Krauss now... Um, and Sam Harris are completely demonized by a lot of regressive atheists, I guess you could call them, because they're seen as misogynists and conservatives and people that hate Muslims and are Islamophobic and stuff like that. So knowing these people pretty well, I, I don't see that at all. Of course, you can say, well, you're just blind to this kind of you know, conservatism. But Your privilege it, is blinding you. Yeah, yeah, more or less. I mean, that's what I've been accused of. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's the case. That's, let's just let me say that. So, so on that happy note, uh, thank you so much for sure. your time here. And uh, Jerry Coyne's latest book is Faith Versus Fact. Uh, but I'm sure there'll be a new one out by the time this airs. Yeah, I don't know especially if you have kids. <laughs> <laughs> the regressive you. Left, the children's book. It'll be great. <laughs>